Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. For this episode, we've dug into our stack of cassette tapes for a story that dates back to the early 1970s. It's about Jean Manford and her son, Morty. They founded a group for parents of gay people in 1973. Today, it's an international organization called PFLAG. Originally, that stood for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. It's got 400 chapters across the country. By the time I came out to my mom in 1977, I knew about PFLAG. So when my mom told me that she wanted me to see a psychiatrist, I told her I'd go if she went to a PFLAG meeting. She said no. I said no. Big mistake. We both would have been better off. But 13 years later, my mother went to her first PFLAG meeting. My mom became such an activist that I had to remind her that I was the gay one, that this was my issue. I put a photo of my mom on makinggayhistory.com from the 1993 Gay March on Washington, and you'll see she paid no attention to me. Jean and Morty's story starts with a letter. I wish you could hear this story from the beginning, but I screwed up the audio. I thought I'd be interviewing Jean Manford by herself, but when I got to her house, it turned out that Morty was there too, so I interviewed them together. But I hadn't done a double interview before. They were already partway through telling me about how Jean came to write a letter to a New York City newspaper about her gay son, when I realized there was a problem with the sound. And that's where we'll pick up the story. So, the context. 1972, Morty was 21. He'd gone to a protest against the New York Daily News, which had published a very offensive editorial calling gay people fairies, nances, swishes, fags, and lezies. There's some words there that I hadn't heard before used against gay people. At the protest, Morty got the shit kicked out of him by the president of the New York City Firemen's Union, who was never charged. Several protesters wound up in the hospital, including Morty. You can read all about the protest in our show notes on makinggayhistory.com. So it's 17 years later, and I'm sitting with Jean and Morty at the dining room table of the Manford family home in Flushing, Queens. Jean is a widow, and Morty has moved home to live with his mom. He's an assistant New York State Attorney General. Jean is very soft-spoken. Her face is framed by a halo of silver hair. Morty is not soft-spoken. He's handsome, and his thick curly hair is chestnut brown. I have no idea where I put the microphone, 
but I definitely pressed record. Interview with Gene Manford and Morty Manford on Saturday, May 13th, 1989. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Location is the Manford home in Queens, New York. Tape one, side one. I had a call from the hospital, and, and then I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Post. Did you have any hesitation about writing this no, letter? No, I didn't. I mean, I was furious. Mm -hmm. Why were you furious? What infuriated what, what right had they got to assault my son and others, and uh, why didn't the police protect them? I guess it was the first time a mother ever sat down and said, yes, I have a homosexual child. Were you hesitant at all about saying no. that? No, I didn't even think about it. And I was amazed that Morty told me that it received such wide notice and that he had had so many calls at the time from people and you know about it. What did you think of your mom? I thought she was terrific. It seemed to me, on one level, to be a very natural kind of reaction and concern and involvement for a parent. What I thought was extraordinary was that other people weren't doing the same at that time. What made your mother different? She's a unique person. I've always felt that Morty was a very special person. And uh, I wasn't going to let anybody walk over him. Well, I mean, a lot of parents who knew their gay children were gay uh, felt their families were very important to them. The question is what about our family? I, mean, I would have to say that we were always very open thinkers. This was an area that they really didn't understand. There was a lot of ignorance but they were willing to consider what are the prejudices that we're taught and are they in fact uh, founded in any reality or are they pure prejudice. We'd all learned a great lesson from the black civil rights movement of the early uh, 60s and the women's movement and I think my parents agreed that uh, the principles of civil rights for blacks and for women were just demands. And this was simply bringing into the discussion a new civil rights perspective. How do we get then from this first letter to what has now become a national, international federation of did you have any idea well, at then, that time that this could come to pass, that you would wind up being in such a public position? Because you seem like a very private time. person. Not at that time, but yes, I, I'm very shy, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, I was not the type to, I've never belonged to organizations, I never tried to be, to do anything, so it, it just happened, you know. Now, I was asked to be on a television show in Boston, and... Well, the three of us yeah. went. We went out to Cincinnati. Uh, at one point, my parents appeared on a, a TV show in New Orleans. Well, I would think five times in Boston, Cleveland, or two or three times Detroit. Every talk show in uh, New York City. Because we were the only people who were willing to go public. We felt that it was a way of educating the public, of you know, making people understand. And besides that, when I did march with Morty, was it 72? Did you ask him not to march? Yeah. You yeah. came to me and you said, uh, you know, he said, March, will you march with us? I said to him, I will march if you let me carry a sign. Parents of gays unite in support for our children. How did people react to you then against me? They screamed, they yelled, they ran over and kissed me. Well, will you talk to my mother? Uh, wow, my mother saw me here, you know, and they, they just couldn't believe that... Uh, 
a parent would do that. It was unbelievable. I had been in the previous year's march also, and the outpouring of emotion from our own community was overwhelming. Nobody got the loud uh, emotional cheers that she did. They were fearful of telling parents. Most of them wouldn't tell. And many had been rejected because the parents knew. I guess they just didn't feel that any parent could be supportive of a gay child. The symbolic presence that my mother provided was a sign of great hope that parents can be supportive, that the people we're closest to, whom we love the most, need not be our enemies, can be our supporters. As Morty and I walked along during that first march, so many people said, talk to my parents, and there were phone calls all day long. That phone was ringing. So that's when we decided, though, during the march, to start something, some you kind of an organization. Yes. What kind of organization did you have in mind? An organization for parents. To talk to each other, to know that you're not the only one, and that yeah, each, because each person thinks, oh, it, I'm the only one who has a child who is homosexual and nobody was willing to let anyone else know about it. To get together and talk to people to say, look, there's nothing wrong with them. And an organization yeah. which would be supportive of the struggle for gay liberation. The parents group was a bridge between the gay community and the straight community. How so? How, the heterosexual how, community. How, how did you see it doing that? Well, I think the very first, when we did finally have the meeting, I think I may have voiced someday, you know, uh, we will fight for the rights and uh, of our children, we will be become political, we will make a, have a national organization. I remember thinking that at the very beginning, uh, but the, the immediate thing was to talk to parents and help them come to terms with the fact that they have a gay child and there was nothing to be ashamed of, nothing wrong with it. He or she was no different than anybody else. Did you get calls regularly at home from people? <laughs> there were so many and so many letters. They were upset. They had this child was homosexual and I, you know, told them to come to the meeting and talk. At the meetings, they would tell me how much I had helped them on the phone. It was not so much what my mother said but that she said it. I remember her many times saying, there's nothing wrong with your son being gay or your daughter being lesbian. You know, we've been taught by society that there's something wrong and society has been wrong. This is a civil rights issue. People had never heard this before and to hear it from another parent appear, uh, they expected to uh, spend the phone conversation in tears with someone at the other end saying, now, now, dearie. But that's not what they got. It, and I think the effect was to make them stop a minute. You don't, don't believe just everything you're told by society, and that society could be wrong. Police were still uh, raiding bars where gays were. Gays had no job protection in any city in this country whatsoever. There was still the stigma of being gay. I used to be fond of saying that the churches said we were sinners and the psychiatrists said we were sick, capitalists uh, said we were subversive, communists said we were immoral. And many gays also accepted those prejudices, if only tacitly. There was no one to say otherwise. There was no 
pro-gay propaganda. The support wasn't out there. I think the emergence of the parents' group at this time provided a much-needed pro-gay propaganda. Uh, we had to reach our own and then reach the world. The general public will listen to parents in a different way than they will listen to advocates what who are gay. What has your mother, mother been able to do that you weren't able to do? To speak to the, a lot of bigots and get through on a level that mere political or social discussion wouldn't accomplish. A lot of people will look at parents and they can identify with parents. They look at me and they say, there's a gay person, I'm not like him, and uh, therefore they're not listening to what I'm saying. But they would say, I have a mother and father too. Let us understand what they're saying. On that level, I think they've been able to reach a lot of people uh, we wouldn't have been able to reach alone. So you've changed lives all over this country, really, through your work. I think at one time you told me my, my picture was over a bar in Brazil, someone told you. <laughs> a gay bar. Yeah. And again, somebody came back from Brazil and said they were in a bar and they saw my mother's picture on the wall, a big uh, mural uh, with her marching. Uh -huh. And someone told, said there was an article in, was it the London Economist? So, I mean, it was in something French, too, I think, you know, about the group. So, uh, we were in Kinsey. And I know my niece was taking a course in college, and she turned and she said, Oh, that's my uncle and aunt. You know? Uh, so, we never knew when, <laughs> what made us famous or infamous. So, in your own way, you were a quiet revolutionary to these people. Well, I made the revolutionary calendar. <laughs> what is the revolutionary calendar? There was a calendar that somebody published, which I picked up over on St. Mark's Place. And it had, uh, for each month, a picture of some occasion. When Mao Zedong's birthday was, there was a picture of Mao. There was, I think, a picture of Dr. Martin Luther King uh, during um, his birthday oh, in the no. month. And for June, guess who the well, calendar girl before was? You, before you turned to June, you said, this is, not a, this is not a true revolutionary calendar unless it talks about the gay march, about, the gay, about gays. And when you turned the page, there you saw my picture. <laughs> Were you surprised? Sure I was. Uh, I considered myself such a traditional person that I didn't even cross the street against the light. <laughs> <laughs> for a shy person, Jean was fierce. And I knew it was her love for Morty that drove her. But it always felt like there was something more behind it. Then just recently I heard that Morty had an older brother, Charles. I called Morty's sister Suzanne and asked about him. She said it was something the family never talked about. Charles killed himself in 1966. He was 22. There was my answer. Jean wasn't going to lose another child. So Jean was determined to make the world a safer place for her son and the rest of us too. But she couldn't save Morty from a virus. He died from complications of AIDS on May 14, 1992. He was only 41. A month after Morty died, my mom and I did an event at the Gay Center in Manhattan for the publication of Making Gay History, my book. We read from Jean and Morty's interview pretty much what you've just heard, 
And then I introduced Jean. Oh my goodness, 300 people got to their feet and cheered. People wouldn't stop applauding until Jean came up to the microphone to say a few words. She was so tiny that her head hardly poked above the podium. Just one more anecdote about Jean, and I only just learned that my mom figures into this one as well. 11 months after Morty died, Jean got a call from an out gay elementary school teacher in Queens named Danny Drum. In those days, there were virtually no out teachers. Danny asked Jean to be the Grand Marshal of the first Queens Gay and Lesbian Pride Parade. Now, I'm from Queens, and growing up there, it felt like the last place that would have a gay pride parade. Jean said yes, but there was a condition. She wanted Danny to help her start a Queens chapter of PFLAG. And where is Danny, the elementary school teacher now? He got himself elected to the New York City Council, and he chairs the council's committee on education. I met with Danny recently, and he told me that he knew my mom. Turns out that my mom helped Danny and Jean start the Queen's P-flat chapter. I had no idea. My mom's been dead for 12 years. I wish I could tell her how proud I was of her. Jean spent the last years of her life with her daughter Suzanne and her husband just outside San Francisco. She died in 2013. She was 92. She outlived her golden boy by three decades. One month after Jean died, President Obama awarded her with the 2012 Presidential Citizens Medal, which recognizes citizens of the United States who have performed exemplary deeds of service for their country or their fellow citizens. Jean's daughter accepted the award at the White House ceremony in her mother's honor. To see a photo of that ceremony and to learn more about Jean, Morty, and PFLAG, please visit our website at makinggayhistory.com. That's where you'll also find the iconic 1972 photo of Jean carrying her Parents of Gays sign. I've got a few key people I'd like to thank for making this podcast possible. Thank you to our executive producer, Sarah Burningham, our audio engineer, Casey Holford, who worked very hard on fixing the sound for this episode, and our composer, Fritz Myers. Thank you also to our social media guru, Hannah Moak, our webmaster, Jonathan Dozier-Ezel, and our head of research, Zachary Seltzer. We had production help from Jenna Weiss-Berman, who believed in this project before it was even a podcast. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division. Funding is provided by the Arcus Foundation, which is dedicated to the idea that people can live in harmony with one another and the natural world. Learn more about Arcus and its partners at arcusfoundation.org. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to all our episodes on makinggayhistory.com. So long, until next time. <laughs>